This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast for visiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Otherworld, episodes seven and eight. On Earth, it would have been called a miracle. Through dying, Virago had been reborn. He had walked in a different dimension, a place of wildness and great power. But he could tell us little, only these mysterious words. Look for the Valley of Vision where the slain are not slain with the sword. In the darkest shadows of life, there you will find a door. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast exploring the unusual weather patterns on the planet of Fell. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? Luke, I would ring each and every one of the bells in Metroplex for you. Aww, this is so sweet. I thought so. Oh. That's on all the greeting cards there in Metroplex. That's like Valentine's Day. That's what you always get. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Jordan, we're here. We're at the final podcast about Otherworld. It seems in both ways, like, uh, we've learned a lot about these these people, this family. The, what are they? The Sterlings? The Sterlings. You've learned so much, you almost remember their name. And there's just so much we're never going to learn. <laughs> I mean, I think we've learned enough. I think you're probably right. I mean... <laughs> We never did get a Smith episode. That is true. We never got a Smith episode. I think partly because they're trying to find a way to write him off the show every episode. Yeah, he's had maybe in eight episodes, a total of 30 seconds of screen time. It is funny. When it started, I thought for sure they were going to make him kind of like a precocious kid genius because it like they seem to be pushing that direction. And then very quickly, there's like, oh, we should just kill him maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Anyway, Jordan, before we get into these final two episodes on Otherworld, I think it's about time that we remake Otherworld as a blockbuster motion picture. <laughs> I'm excited about this. I think uh, it's the first time we've done this where I only have one pick for each person. Oh, that's good. Um, I hope your picks are better than mine. I had a lot of trouble with this, so I kind of, I have two versions of the movie in my head. Uh, both of them probably suck. <laughs> These characters are so two-dimensional kind of joking what we said at the beginning of this episode but after eight episodes these are still cardboard cutouts of people like so you could put anyone in here and decide what the character is i would say the only things i'm excited about is i think i've got like a good idea for what the maybe not the plot but the universe looks like of the feature film and then maybe my directors are okay (laughs) okay let's go right into it i think obviously the star of the movie is our hal sterling who do you have of course, I've got two. I've got two picks. I'll give you them both, and then you can tell me yours. Okay. And this is obviously this will push the film to potentially different directions. So that could be very similar. Mm-hmm. Is you're either casting as Hal Sterling, The Rock. <laughs> you you pick The Rock in every movie. <laughs> I just think he should be in everything. <laughs> or the other version of this movie, Will Ferrell. It's funny. I get what you're doing with Will Ferrell. I at one point when I first started thinking about this thought maybe I'd put Ben Stiller. But then you'll see I I went in a different direction. I think I'm making this more of a, it's a remake as as happens now. And it's gritty. It's real. Oh, it's gritty. Um, See, in my mind with Will Ferrell, this is uh, that Land of the Lost remake. Right. Well, here's my pick. Completely different direction. Christian Bale. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's, uh, you know what? Let's go with Christian Bale. Sure. I, I want to see him yell at the kids behind the scenes. <laughs> that's, that's what I was thinking, the same thing. 
Okay, so Christian Bale's our star. So who do you have as your picks for June? Wait, how is he transforming his body? He's shaving his head, maybe? <laughs> or no, no, maybe no, he's getting real. <laughs> I think he's just making himself. He's just giving himself like a, a slight male pattern balding. And he like really gets into dad jokes. That's right. Everyone around him is just like super annoyed off off camera. But he's killing it, you know, the classic Christian Bale. All right, June Sterling, the mother. Yeah, who do you have? I've had two picks again here. Once again, very different picks. Both, I think, actually are better choices than my first two. I'm going with either Marissa Tomei or Sarah Silverman. Oh, weird. Hmm. Well, I see where you were going with your uh, uh, Will Ferrell and Sarah Silverman. You're going for a real comedy blockbuster. I think um, Sarah Silverman could transition. She's got those acting chops. That's right. Yeah, I mean, she's beat some, some dramas. Well, I'm going to give you mine, and I don't think... I, th- I may have actually used her before, but I'll tell you something weird about my pick and the next one as well, because I didn't realize the connection here. But I picked uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Rebecca Ferguson. Remind me. I, the name, I know it. I can't picture her, though. Well, she's been in... I mean, I think the biggest movies now is she's in the Mission Impossible movies. Ah, uh, yes. She's the... She is the, the Shining. You love that Shining remake movie, the sequel. Who, who is she? She was the... Funny hat the, lady. Funny hat lady. Oh, she was good in that. Yeah, I did like that movie. You did like it. I didn't like it. This is, we're never going to agree on that. What was it called? The Shining Two. This time it's real. What was it? Um, I don't know. Overlook Hotel. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't good. Anyway, actually, yeah, that's not true. I was reading about it, and uh, at some point, someone tried to make a sequel called Overlook Hotel. Oh, really? I think it was like J.J. Abrams or somebody. Right. It's going to be about all the ghosts and their crazy adventures. I tell you, when I watched The Shining, I thought, man, I want more back history that I don't care about. <laughs> I would like to advocate in this case, if we're going to have Christian Bale as the star, mm-hmm. I really think a person who would hold their own against him would actually be Sarah Silverman. I'm going to go with what you think. You're, you're the lead producer on this. <laughs> I just think he, he brings a lot of intensity, and I just feel like she would like bounce that back in a real good way. <laughs> okay, it's already a weird movie. I like when it starts going in a direction where you're thinking... At least people will walk by and see this poster and turn their heads and say, what is this? All right. Let's go to Trace Sterling, who I I went through quite a few options before I decided on my final two. Okay. Well, I'll give you mine. And the reason I thought it was odd that I picked Rebecca Ferguson, because uh, the person I picked for Trace is sexy boy wonder himself, Timothy Chalamet. And why I thought that was interesting is he's in Dune playing whatever Dune boy and uh, Rebecca is playing his mom in that movie. And I didn't realize after I'd done it, they, I've, uh, me and Denny Villeneuve have the same casting ideas. <laughs> it's funny. He was on a short list for me as well. But because he's in Dune, I decided I didn't want him. Out of spite? No, I don't know. I just felt he's got enough. He's got enough for himself. Let's give, let's give a chance to someone else. Oh, I thought you meant because you love that TV movie version we watched so much. And you were like, it, nothing will ever be the same. I can't have, see anyone else as... Uh, <laughs> his, what was his name in it? Dune Boy? I can't even remember. Ar- 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 Armides? I don't know. I can't remember either. The names are tough. We're going to have that guy write in and get angry at us again. The, grand- the grandson? Yeah, that's right. All right. So my first choice is i think in the same vein as timothy chalamet like who is a young man who is in blockbusters right now the rock that is tom holland spider-man himself okay yeah yeah but the thing with trace sterling is and this is where i was having trouble casting him because i couldn't find the right punchable face yeah he's a dick and i finally nailed it i found the teen actor who you just like can't help but not like and who's that Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. 
that's a good pick. It's funny because you're going to hear my next pick for Gina, but it's funny that you picked him. I mean, you can, they're basically the same age teens. You can kind of have them, I think, in that age range. I don't know. What do you think? Who do you like for the role? I think we should go with old Punchable Face. <laughs> Finn Wolfhard? Yeah, yeah. Is that his okay. real name? Yeah, that's his real name. Man. The script's going to be rewritten, so a lot of, like, bad things happen to him. <laughs> he just, it, it's just a series of him always falling over and hitting his face. He's like falls in a pile of slime, uh, gets splashed by a truck. Nice. Give the people what they want. Yeah. Well, at least you. <laughs> I'm the people. So who do we think for Gina? Gina, the character I like the most. Tough, another tough casting piece here, but I've got two choices again. I went with either uh, Beanie Feldstein, who uh, was in Booksmart and may perhaps, unfortunately, best known as Jonah Hill's sister. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but she's she's talented. Or I went with, uh, and this is going to be controversial because I'm a big fan, but I don't think a lot of people are, uh, Kiernan Shipka of Mad Men and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Oh, yeah. She's not a very good actress, though. Huh? I like her a lot. Do you? Well, I'm gonna, I'll tell you my pick. And I think it's funny that we've got told uh, uh, Wolf Boy Punchable Face is uh, my pick was Millie Bobby Brown in another moment of synergy. I mean, when you're looking at teen actors, you're going to end up looking at Stranger Things. It can't be helped. Isn't that funny? We're just the, we're like those classic people who just can't think outside the box of uh, who's already been cast in something. We're going to make it in Hollywood, baby. <laughs> well, I think you probably know better than me. What do you think? I don't know any of these teen stars. I don't know. It's a tough, it's a tough call. I think if we wanted to get really outside of the box, we'd go with Beanie, but... I don't know. What do you think? Should we? Uh, how are we going to decide this? Let's go with a, a bad man actress, uh, Susie Jenkins. <laughs> Kiernan Shipka, then. Yep. I really like her in uh, Black Coat's Daughter. Oh, what was that? So some horror movie she was in. Oh. I watched, wasn't she the, in that movie where you, uh, the other Netflix movie where you couldn't make a sound or you couldn't see or something? Oh, right. Uh, that, yeah, whatever it was. You couldn't make a sound in that one. Yeah, it was, was terrible. This, it was like Bird Box, but you couldn't, sp- but that you couldn't make sounds, which was just like the other one. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. Okay, so the most important role though is coming up, I think, and it's the yes. the villain. No, no, where are you going? We gotta cast Smith Sterling. Oh, that's true. That's true. Well, I have an interesting pick. What do you? Who do you have for Smith? I, I forgot about him. Just like the writers of the actual show, <laughs> youngest child. This was a tough one to find. The children actors who uh, I recognized. Okay, you go first. I've got two. One of them is a very fresh face, which will only be recognizable to people who are really watching the latest HBO programming. Okay. I've got Winta McGrath from the brand new series Raised by Wolves. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Uh, he is the young boy in that. Perfectly fine. <laughs> that's the that's you know what? that's the best review I could hope for for myself. What's he like? He's perfectly fine. <laughs> and then because i had to think of a second actor who is a child and that is very difficult the rock i went with i went with uh i believe this is how it's pronounced ian armitage young sheldon himself oh yeah that kid's in too much stuff we can't cast him <laughs> he's doing fine how much would you like to see how everyone ignores him <laughs> well i'll tell you i went in a different direction and because, as we've mentioned, Smith is such a non-character and a non-factor in all these episodes. Can I stop you for one second? Mm-hmm. I was the most worried with what you were going to cast in this part. I was I was just like, Jordan's going to do something terrible, isn't he? No, no, no. It's not terrible. 
But what I've decided is I have replaced him with a dog. And uh, <laughs> it is any dog we would like. It's I think it's better for the movie. You know what? I'm on board with that. Let's let's give him a dog. Yeah. <laughs> but we still call it Smith. It's Smith the dog. A better dog name. Yep, I agree. All right. Sorry, young Sheldon. A dog is taking your role. <laughs> well, well, can we just at least pick the breed? What do you think? Is it just like a fun mutt or is it, uh, what do you think? It's mm, a good question. Well, it's that dog from Frasier, I guess. He's back. <laughs> the dog's dead. No, he's fine. He's fine? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on. Let's go on to Kroll. This yeah, is the yeah. most exciting piece of casting we can do. Yeah. I've got a real whirlwind pick. Give it to me. Kroll or Changing It Up. And I think actually, uh, what's his face, uh, who played the role in the TV show, was really shortchanged with what he got. But I am Changing It Up and playing the role of Kroll is Anne Dowd. And Dowd, eh? I mean, not a bad pick, actually. It changes the the dynamic a little bit. But how, would you ever think you'd see a movie where Christian Bale faces off against Anne Dowd with a dog? Not in my wildest dream. <laughs> so who do you got? You, you, how are you going to top that? Come on. I mean, mine is one of them is just I picked him uh, so they can recapture their chemistry. Uh, Vin Diesel. So I just figured that animosity between him and The Rock would really come out. But since he's not in it, I think we can move on from that. Okay. Uh, And then, again, this is just like cookie-cutter casting. I just went with Dave Bautista. (laughs) You're really going for that Kroll's going to be a a physical presence. I mean, I just pictured him as a big bald man for some reason. Right. Well, what do you think? Do we we gender swap this and go with Ann Dowd? I think that is the most exciting casting, that's for sure. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, this movie is something but i'm gonna tell you be honest luke i could not figure out who should direct this movie so it's all you all me well i'll tell you in my mind i don't know what the plot is to the movie i think it's you just make something up i guess but the setting of the movie is fell we just go all in and is just like one giant non-stop surreal suburb (laughs) let's do it everywhere they go it's a suburb it's more like an Edward Scissorhands sort of suburb. I think every every like province is still a suburb, but it's like all like this weird like it gets more and more surreal the further you go into it. Mm. Like there's plasmoids, mm. there's the rock and roll suburb, there's the suburb where women rule. I love the rock and roll suburb. They're uh, having to battle a lot of uh, neighborhood committees. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, problems with the municipal governments in this world. <laughs> so my directors, I think, both fall into that category. Uh, first of all, I went with, uh, Luke Bazan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I wouldn't have picked that. I mean, obviously the fifth element is a, is a clear thing, but he did that. What was it called recently? Uh, planet with a million cities or city with a million planets or something, which is not necessarily, yeah, I never saw it's that. not necessarily a great movie, but visually and like from an alien, like weird alien perspective, it's very like full flair. And I could see him bringing that to this world of suburbs. Hmm. That's your autobiography, by the way, full of flair. Flair, uh, and of course, because I also said it's going to be such a weird movie set in this weird world. I think there's one man who could really bring us to a place with this movie, and that would be David Lynch. There you go. That's it. We don't need anything else. That's it. That's that's who's directing this movie. I think you give him the plot, like uh, ordinary suburban American family ends up in a nightmare world, and he just runs. He takes care of the rest. It's funny you even mention that because as a movie. There's some real potential there, just like this show had potential. And I think, as we mentioned in the previous episode, that was the intention of this show, to be a family thrust into a essentially nightmare situation. 
and they just didn't want to commit to it. So you got something somewhere in the middle of that and just family adventure. But I mean, there's potential for an idea there. So maybe this wouldn't be the worst movie ever. I mean, and Sweet Cast a Dog is definitely going to talk now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's, it's not just knowing looks to the uh, to the camera. It's David Lynch, baby. Anything's on the table. It's true. It's true. Well, this is a blockbuster in the making. I cannot wait to watch this movie in the theaters. Should we give a real quick uh, recap of who we have? Oh, yes. I suppose we could. I suppose we could do that. Uh, this, so, Otherworld, the motion picture, stars Christian Bale as Hal Sterling. Mm-hmm. Sarah Silverman as June Sterling. <laughs> yeah. Finn Wolfhard as Trace Sterling. Mm-hmm. Kieran Shipka as Gina Sterling. Mm-hmm. A dog as Smith Sterling. Yep. And Dowd as Commander Kroll and directed by David Lynch. Yeah, I mean, you know, take my money now. It's going to cost all your money to get this made. So. <laughs> and, it's, and, and then David Lynch will be angry because it's not what his original vision was. Yeah, because we cut him. We're going to lock him out of the edit suite for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, his first cut was four and a half hours. It's his own fault. Could we'll get to it in the next episode? But there's a sequence which I timed how long it was, and like David Lynch himself wouldn't have cut something that long. <laughs> I was very excited for that sequence, and obviously we'll get to it because often I was thinking, I'm like, how often does jordan say a sequence went on for like 20 minutes when it was like 45 seconds in reality i'm like finally he's got a sequence that is literally 10 percent of the running time of the episode it was bad anyway but that, what a tease for later on all right here is the imdb summary for episode 7 mansion of the beast when the family comes across virago a man who looks like an animal he demands that june remain or he will kill all of them june stays uh, I truncated that a little, but that's by rcs0411 at yahoo.com. <laughs> These people. Um, I'm going to say two quick things. Virago, is that the thing that Michael Jackson said he had that made his skin white? <laughs> what? Remember he had said he had something? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Don't worry about that. And the more importantly <laughs> thing is, we can, <laughs> that's so dumb. We can, uh, we can wrap this up quicker than anything we've ever done. And just by saying, let me do it. Let me do it. Jordan, Jordan, yeah. let me do it. Okay. Because I wrote a little thing for you to start off the episode. Okay. Tale as old as time. Yeah, I know. Song as old as rhyme. It's Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. If you know the plot to Beauty and the Beast, that is what this episode is. So there we are. Episode seven. Well, let's do episode eight. <laughs> That's it. There's nothing else to say. Oh, come on. Let's talk about Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Virago. It makes your skin white. <laughs> The family is start. We start them off. They're traveling through the dead forest of uh, Imanula. Maybe that's how it's pronounced. I don't. Yeah, it's something like that. They're uh, being. They're traveling this time by a mule drawn wagon that they purchased <laughs> from a miner. <laughs> this. This is. It's gotta be though. It's funny when you when you finish a series and you see these weird things that you know connect the episodes or, or sort of things that they lean on. And for whatever reason, this show. It started, I think, in episode three, baby where they had to always start it in a weird way and have a voiceover to explain things. And it's just like, spoiler alert, this one starts on literally a horse-drawn carriage, and the next episode starts on a hot air balloon for no reason. Well, it's like that time they got a boat for some reason yeah, in the opening, and then like, you never see the boat. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's, it doesn't have any uh, repercussions or have anything to do with the episode you're about to see. It's just like, we had a wagon, so they're going to travel by wagon now. Yeah, and they and they take that wagon into a spooky forest that's uh, full of bald eagles, 
and uh, one injured owl so we can see uh, June be a veterinarian for a bit. Yeah, she's back to being a veterinarian. Finally gets to use that skill set. I mean, I guess it is a June-centric episode, so she had to break that it That is true. She finally got like a... Uh, these two episodes, the two probably best characters got their solo episodes. And as they travel through it, we keep seeing this uh, wolf man watching them from the woods. Man, how hilarious does he look in this because what they're going for is they're clearly going for beast from beauty the beast but it's almost as if the legal team came in and said guys we have to make sure he doesn't look like this or doesn't look like that and um he kind of reminded me i've never actually seen these series but do you remember there was a beauty and the beast series yeah, that had hellboy ron perlman yeah yeah i used to watch it all the time i loved it it looks like the same makeup Am I wrong? Is it not similar? Uh, I mean, it's so insulting to that show <laughs> because <laughs> this this makeup is not the same. This looks like like an old man whose eyebrows have gone out of control, uh, mixed with a lion, mixed with bad local theater uh, uh, prosthetics. Well, I'm glad you're here to defend that show because I would have I would have dispersed its name. <laughs> Look, I don't know how well it's aged, but as a kid. I was there. Ron Perlman, Linda Hamilton. I was my face right up against the screen. <laughs> um, and as they're traveling, they, they end up spending the night and they get hit by another crazy thunderstorm in uh, Otherworld, which we come to know mm-hmm. is, is a planet named Fell this episode. Was that what they said? Yeah, it's the planet of Fell. But yes, Fell has these wacky thunderstorms. But we're going to find out they're not naturally occurring. Are they not? I thought I thought they were saying like this one is like it's like weird energy pulses shooting out of the sky. And then there was that late. Yeah, but isn't he controlling them? But there was also that laser storm. I thought he just controlled the weather, but it meant that in this world, all of the thunderstorms are wacky. Oh, I yeah, maybe. I I thought I thought it was all controlled by him. I thought it was it. They were implying like whatever his like temper got the best of him. Yeah, I just but I thought it was still a naturally occurring weather thing. He does control the weather with his mind, but he doesn't like invent weather. <laughs> No, no, he didn't invent weather. You're right. Anyways, I think we're arguing the same point, which is this is not a good episode. <laughs> but yes, uh, this wacky thunderstorm happens, which I do like that. I believe Gina looks up and she's like, storms on this world are so weird. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> she just says it like it is. She's the audience, Serg. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, as you said, the beast is able to raise his hand and like shut off the storm when he sees that it's freaking out old June, who's so good with animals because he's got a little crush on June. Immediately, he just sees her from afar and he's like, that's the one. Well, he helped. she helped that owl. So she knew. Good person. Oh, right. Um, and of course, the next day as they're traveling via wagon through this woods, they they hit a dead end on the trail in the forest for some reason. And this is the point when uh, this beast, Virago, uh, reveals himself and tells them they're trespassing and he's the king of the trees and the lord of the animals. And uh, let me just backtrack for one second. After June grabs the owl and she says that it has a broken wing and blah, 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 they talk about it. Then the owl flies away and June says, and let me just, you know, mention... They're in an alternate dimension where they've seen weird things happening. And the fact that the owl had a broken wing and then flies away, she goes, that's the strangest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) That was the weirdest thing. June, there's no way that's the strangest thing you've ever seen. And then two seconds later, old uh, uh, bargain basement uh, Wolfman Beast shows up. (laughs) I mean, how much did you like how badly they distorted his voice in the audio? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, I mean, I don't know what they were going for. What was it? He's just like, he's this god-like figure so he has to have this weird voice he's just so inhuman that they like really badly warped his 
vo- vocal track, I guess, in post, but it makes him really hard to understand, especially now that we're watching a very degraded YouTube version. It is funny because I don't think I caught most of his dialogue, but it doesn't really matter because his whole point is, you know what Beauty and the Beast is. He needs June to be in his castle, so she'll love him. Exactly. But let's let's actually talk a little bit about the history of Arago and how he became this way, because we'll get it over the course of the episode, mm-hmm. but this is the only thing that probably sets it slightly apart, or at least sets Beauty and the Beast in the world of Otherworld. Um, mm-hmm. So he was originally a man who, uh, quote, learned the ways of secret knowing, end quote, in Emar, and he attempted to travel dimensions to the fabled planet of Earth, um, but while he was traveling, quote, beyond science, end quote, he ended, up, <laughs> he ended up entering a realm of mystery that wasn't quite to Earth. Like, he didn't quite get there. He ended up some, in some realm of mystery. And when he returned to Fell, he was a telekinetic beast man who tried to take over Emar, failed, and was banished to the woods. There's so much backstory that they have to get in. We get most of this from um, a character named Aiken or Aiken. How do they pronounce it? I think Aiken. Aiken. And did, did you know who's playing Aiken? Did you notice? Yeah, Gomez Adams himself. Yeah, John Aston. Yeah, I was really excited about that. But he has a fake nose. Why would they have done that? I didn't even. I didn't. It was bad quality, so I had trouble seeing him a lot of the time. He's got such a, a great character face, and then they cover it with a beard and a fake nose. And I, like, I still recognize him because he has those very distinctive eyes. But I was like, what a terrible decision. Anyways, doesn't matter. But he gives you most of this info. Yeah, and he was underused, I agree. I thought he should have been the beast if you're going to have him. I agree. Anyway, uh, now that he's become this beast man, though, he's kind of been banished to these woods, and he's seeking love in an attempt to stop from <laughs> losing his human side and becoming a full beast, which is uh, why he wants June to stay with him and like love him so that he doesn't lose his human side. Um, of course, as you might expect, Hal, Hal's not having it. He can have an affair, but God forbid if some man comes on to June, some wolf man. Does old Virago, does he say that explicitly that that's what he's doing? He doesn't, right? We get it all from Aiken. Well, you get it when he when they kind of are together. He's like, ah, I love you and my B-side and I'm dying. He kind of said, but not for a long time. Like off the top here, he's just like, June's got to come stay with me. I'm going to kill your family. Can I just say my favorite thing about Virago? Yes. Is I love how he drinks water. It's just like lapping it up like a beast, my friend. Yeah, he only like a real beast. and they just keep going back to it. And I thought it was going to be like a bit of a character point or had something to do with them because they just keep cutting back to him drinking like a dog out of a fountain. But it just is just like, can you believe it? Well, it is because I mean, we're jumping all over the place here, but it doesn't matter. The reason is, is they see this idea that he doesn't want to eat in front of June, kind of like the beast, because he eats like a beast. And he's embarrassed by it. Yeah. But they can neither afford nor have the makeup to do a food eating scene. So the best they can do is have him lap water out of a fountain. But didn't you think that was going to become... Like, I get that was the point of the episode or the point of that scene. But I thought it was going to have some sort of magical properties or pay off in some way. Because we kept cutting to it. No, it, it, it is literally just because they couldn't afford to have him, like, eat out of a dead, like, sheep's carcass or something. Like, yeah. that was what they should, like, that was what they wanted to do. And then someone said, you can't. And they're like, oh, I guess he just drinks water out of a, out of a bowl. He gets his, like, all big hairy eyebrows all wet. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's go back to where we were <laughs> in the plot. Hal does not want June to leave, so he uh, whips out his old laser pistol, shoots Virago, no effect, but thankfully for Virago, he has the power of magic missiles from Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. 
It was great. He just whipped out a little magic missile, threw a little ball of orbit. Uh, old Hal blew him off his feet. Hal didn't learn anything from his time playing that laser ball game. Didn't dodge. Nope. And it's basically at this point that uh, Hal is left unconscious on the ground with the children and June agrees to come live with him. And they head off to his mansion in the forest, which is it's just a smart home, all automated by magic. Uh, yeah, the sheets right. move on their own. Windows open and close by themselves. One wall has a person's face in it made of stone, but never talks or does anything. That was weird, wasn't it? They they sort of like have characters in a scene and they walk out and then they show a, a, like, oh no, there's a guy's face in the wall. And you're like, he's listening the whole time. It's like, nope. Yeah, like they cast a human being to stand behind a wall and get his face painted like a stone so he can look around and be like, oh, you're like, oh, this is going to be the candlestick from the Beauty and the Beast or something. And uh, no, don't worry about him. They're never going to look at him again. <laughs> He's got no dialogue. You're never going to see him again. Uh, what I did like, though, is Virago, once he gets June home, he's just like, you're looking a little uh, dour, my love. Uh, allow me to transform you into a big-haired woman with uh, drapey clothes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you have the power to change what someone's wearing, you're going to use it. Yeah, the real... Uh, I ha- I really just like the idea. Of, like, I can do anything. I'm going to get make your hair real big. <laughs> it is the 80s. But yes, he basically spends most of his time trying to convince June to love him by just like asking her to love him. Or the one time he does offer to make her a falcon egg uh, breakfast. So that was something. It is true. There's a lot of scenes of her eating and then him being like, pretty good food, right? Uh, anyways, you want to love me? No? See you, you later. Love, and can then, you love you me know. now? Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's all the scenes of them is just back and forth. I'm like, will you love me? He's like, I have a family. Oh, please love me. And like he throws some tantrums and like... All he really does is, like, if you don't love me, I'm going to lose my human side and die. And, like, at the end of, like, all of these long sequences, June finally just, like, I guess, I don't know. It's unclear why, but she develops empathy for him because he's so sad. And this is what you say. To to prove her empathy for him, she lets him drink water out of her hand. Yeah, that was a weird scene, huh? Well, that was just it. It was just to show that he she is comfortable with him being a beast. But, like, he's only a beast in as far as he drink He doesn't pick up a glass. <laughs> I mean, that is a beast. Um, and so because she's showing some empathy for him, you know, this whole time she's been saying she wants to leave. He's just like just in classic Beauty and the Beast form says, I'll let you leave my castle one time to go say goodbye to your family. But you got to come back. Mm-hmm. Classic plot board for Beauty and the Beast. She's off to uh, head out to find her family. And now that that's most of June's plot taken care of, we'll go back to kind of what the family's been up to. Because the kids dragged unconscious Hal to a hut they found, which is, as you mentioned, owned by Gomez Adams, playing Aiken in this role. Mm-hmm. And he is Virago's brother. His primary purpose in the episode is to fill them in on backstory. We've mentioned it's a bit of a waste of the actor. Yeah. And he kind of is also like, you want to get your wife back? Well, no weapon will kill Virago. Not even my cool sonic tube. Oh, I love the sonic tube. For no reason, he just pulls out a bazooka and then just shoots it off. You're like, what is, what is happening? Well, when we first see him, too, the kids have dragged Unconscious Hal into this, like, stranger's home. And then in walks Gomez Adams with a bazooka on his shoulder. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, let's see where this goes. But I like it because he shoots it and he's like, impressive, right? Anyways, this won't work. So just ignore it. <laughs> it was their most impressive weapon. It did blow up that rock. That's true. But what can kill the beast is uh, Cold Starfire. Cold Starfire, that's right. And suddenly this becomes like, I thought this was just going to become like a Lord of the Rings plot at this point. Like, oh, we got to go for this long journey to go get the 
star time because they're like pointing at the the, the mountain they're like it's so far away how are we going to get there cut to they're there what i like though is they're not all there it's aiken hal and trace that they've left uh gina behind to babysit smooth at the cottage someone's gotta watch him <laughs> but yeah they go to this mountain sit next to a pond and they're like well let's just wait here for a star to fall from another universe yeah is wasn't that weird and it's how did the effect was really weird because it's like this it looks really tiny um, and I don't know if it was supposed to actually look like a full-size star, but it was a tiny little star superimposed that just slowly falls down into the water. And then uh, old Trace is like, guess it's time for me to get shirtless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a sexy scene. Uh, he takes off his shirt, dives into the dives into the pond, and then we just get a shot of the pond glowing. And uh, in slow motion, shirtless Trace emerges from the water, dripping wet, holding a piece of the cold star fire. So we got it. And then we get to see, which I think we've seen it maybe the third time since we've done this podcast, we get to see if someone being like a mason and uh, like an iron worker and making a weapon. You got to forge an arrowhead of that cold starfire. Yeah, you got to. It was on a silver shaft with lumina bird feathers, Jordan. Well, I mean, I know people love blacksmithing. That's all I know. <laughs> anyway, uh, now that they kind of have the thing that can kill virago they they decide to head off and hunt him down so they can save june and of course you know before you leave anywhere to do anything they leave a little note in the door to let people know they've gone off to fight a monster and did you notice they wrote it in i'm assuming it was aiken that wrote the note but it was in like old timey script what i liked is as uh because aiken puts it on the door being like we're off to go kill the beast if we don't come back we're dead um and as they're leaving smith stops and looks up he's just like what does that say and i'm just like is Smith illiterate? <laughs> he might be. It doesn't matter. We've, we we never know anything about it. We're never going to. Well, now that we know he's actually a, a human dog, that, that makes a lot more sense. That scene would have been better if the dog just looked up and was like, huh? <laughs> um, but of course, leaving a note on the door is just so when uh, June arrives at this cottage riding a magic horse, she knows where they are. She can uh, realize they've gone off to kill old Virago and attempt to race back to the mansion to stop Hal, only to get thrown off her horse by a snake on the ground. Yeah, that was odd but anyways it happened because you're all worried that this horse was really gonna uh, change the tide but don't worry about it it's out now (laughs) so hal gets to the mansion confronts old virago with a crossbow uh virago is like very boastful immediately he's just like oh you're gonna shoot me with an arrow i can vanish at will and he like showing off all his powers and uh then that horse rides in without uh without old june on it and uh, that distracts Virago enough for ja- Hal to shoot him in the chest immediately. <laughs> yeah, he just shoots him and kills him. They're like, they don't even, he doesn't negotiate. He doesn't really talk or anything. Very little. And then he's just like, yeah, just kills him. June, or Hal's a man of action. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And then June shows up and she's very upset because her husband is a jerk. Her husband murdered a man who wasn't evil, just lonely. Uh, I'm still a kidnapper, but. <laughs> it's true. True. But his intentions were pure. It's uh, hard to say. He sounds yeah. a little more like an incel than a good man. But, <laughs> um, but yes, uh, June comes over to the body of uh, the beast and she sheds a single glowing magical tear from her eyeball. And it falls onto um, Virago and he slowly starts turning into a somewhat attractive man. He's got that cool pencil mustache. Yeah, that was an odd choice. I also thought it was odd because he is brothers with uh, John Aston there, and he is decades younger than John Aston. Well, I think what they were implying is that his human age had been stopped in time. Ah, uh, I see. That makes sense. I mean, I'm filling in those blanks. I mean, they gave us 10 minutes of Starfire and stuff, but uh, I'll just say that's why. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, once again, the Sterlings have saved the day. And uh, Hal lets us know at the end via voiceover that Virgo gave them one very important hint on how to get home. <laughs> yep. Did you did you write this down? I have the whole thing. No, 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 no. Go for it. So this is the first piece of information on how they get home once they get to Emar, and this is this is what they were told: Look for the Valley of Vision, where the slain are not slain with the sword. In the darkest shadows of light, there you will find a door. Yeah, like I mean, if someone told me that, I'd be like, seriously, this doesn't help me at all. <laughs> don't you want a little rhyme to help you get home no like tell me where the mcdonald's is i make a left there you know that's what i'm looking for maybe it's not a rhyme maybe it's just a poem but anyway that's that's it that's a, a whole beauty and the beast episode beat for beat but with a little other world skin put over top yeah i mean that's a good way to say it poor june can you imagine this is the episode she got yeah she's just like seriously she's like isn't that other much better beauty and the beast show on the air right now with ron perlman <laughs> why didn't i get that part <laughs> Actually, I think that show came out a few years later, but regardless. Fair enough. Let's move on. Here is the IMDb summary for Episode 8, Princess Metra. As we sailed away from Metroplex, we could only hope that the story of Gina's courage would start a new legend of freedom that would live on. We had come from the clouds, and now that is where we were going, in search of our own freedom and home. Gina is mistakenly identified as the long-lost princess of their newest home zone and finds the title brings mainly danger to her and the family. And that was courtesy of BGP. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the plot for the most part. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty succinct. I mean, I don't think it gets the nuances that this show really has, you know. As we mentioned... The episode starts with them traveling via hot air balloon. Hot air balloon. <laughs> and it's like, there's a lot of shots of this hot air balloon. But where did they get the hot air balloon, Jordan? They bought a crate from some, I don't know, some vagabond. And uh, and nope. what was in it was, what, what was it? And all I know is there was pieces of a hot air balloon. And as a family project, they put together the hot air balloon over several weeks. I mean, you missed the most important part about where they bought it, though. They bought it at an auction. Is that what they said? It was an auction? Yeah, they went to an auction and bought a mysterious crate that just happened to have most of the parts of a hot air balloon. Where's that episode? I know. I was just like, I got to see the episode where they go to an auction. <laughs> Anyways, the important thing is as a family, they had a project and the project was the hot air balloon. And now, because everyone knows if there's a fast way to get someplace, what you want is a hot air balloon. Yes, they've uh, they've floated into the province of Metroplex, which is, as I would describe it, and you can see if you can agree or disagree with me, Jordan, is essentially a late stage capitalist society of the ruling macro elite and their micro worker slaves. And my, I think maybe my favorite part of this episode was the uh, the matte paintings that they used to show the city. Yeah, it's a nice looking city, and like I just kept thinking because like basically it's like classic thing: elites and slaves. But what it is, is just a manufacturing center where they make stuff and send them off. And it's just like this entire time I just kept thinking, this is just Amazon. Like this is just an Amazon warehouse they live in. <laughs> is this the second place they've gone to where it's just like a um, a like, factory society? Wasn't that in the first episode? Um, No, the first episode was a mining society for robots. Mm. But I mean, the point is like a, a lot of it seems like this world, it doesn't entirely work, but it seems like this world is a lot of communities or cities or some sort of organization organizations set up to fund the the city center in some way either through resources or through work yeah i think you're right i think it's a lot like hunger games in that way each individual province has like one major export Mm -hmm. farming 
building pleasure products, uh, mining. What did the uh, the one that was the women run society? What were they producing? Oh, they were off the grid, baby. Your answer is estrogen. Boo. <laughs> I, I thought I thought for sure it would be something funny there. <laughs> Um, anyway, as they're floating over, of course, Metroplex security immediately pulls out a laser cannon to shoot down their balloon. Let's say you're shooting that laser cannon and you see that enemy coming in. The guy shoots once and he hits the hot air balloon and he's like, good enough. And it starts like floating. I'd have kept shooting it. I think he shoots it twice, but, uh, they clearly want to keep whoever's live on it for some reason. Yeah, not me. If I had a laser cannon, that's the end of you. Well, it's a good thing they did because when, uh, everyone arrives to see who's on this hot air balloon, they see Gina... And everyone thinks she must be the second coming of Princess Metra. There's a little bit of uh, stretching you have to do to make this work. But basically, she looks like this uh, deity of this mythology that's being created in their society. And what starts happening is very quickly, she seems to have all of the elements that that show that she is this deity. Yes, uh, she is... The spitting image and contain and has like a necklace uh, that matches the what the old princess had. So they security immediately interrupts a meeting of the prime manager and her council with news of Gina's arrival. And once again, this is where I kept really getting into. It. I'm like, oh, this this society is just Amazon because a uh, prime manager, just like Amazon Prime, <laughs> they were ahead of time this show. <laughs> and yes, yeah, she's wearing this amulet that they are like, oh, that's the princess's amulet, which is just a necklace of a silver dollar featuring the likeness of uh, President Kennedy. Yeah, that was weird, right? Well, I, it makes more sense as we get into it because they're seeing this necklace of Kennedy. They're seeing Gina with her golden hair and they're like, all right, we need to take this lady to the wall of memories for judgment by the orders of antiquity and the great test of the ever closed door. You got to give it to the show uh, that they do try to throw in as much weird stuff as possible, even if it's just disposable dialogue. At least they're trying. It is true. It, it does raise the stakes for a hot second, even though we'll never learn anything about most of the things they just said. Yeah, we're not going to get like that scene in the earlier episode where we get to see like 10 minutes of wax figures reenacting things. Um, but yes, no one has passed this test in 200 years to prove that they are the returned Princess Metra. So when Gina gets there, um, it's very funny. They're like, we're forcing you to take this test. But if you fail, you and your family die. And they're like, well, why does she have to take it? They're like, shut up, make her take the test. <laughs> shut up, take the test. And uh, as she puts her hand on a glowing pedestal, I guess the pre-recorded voice of the original princess comes on to administer the test. And the first thing the princess says is, hope you're hip with what's going on. Yeah, it's a real um, nod to what you're going to find out later because she has a very particular vernacular. Very uh, California girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and the test is three questions, uh, all of which Gina is able to answer easily because they are name the father of your country. Yeah, George Washington. Uh, which ball is bigger than a golf ball but smaller than a basketball? Baseball, which, by the way, you could have picked many other. It could have been tennis ball, but that would apparently have been wrong. That that was the one question where I'm like, oh, this is where I would have failed the test. There's too many balls to choose from. Yeah. And finally, uh, name the famous German saying of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, it could be nine Berliner. But here's the thing about it. If you were not American, you'd have failed this test of being killed. Do you think all the people that have come through different dimensions, they happen to be, they were like German or Swedish or whatever? Here's the thing. I was thinking of the same thing in this episode. It's just like everyone we've encountered who's encountered someone from Otherworld or has been from, or no, from Earth and, or who... Anyone from Earth who's come to Otherworld has been American. Mm -hmm. uh, Pango's grandfather had an American dollar. Uh, this woman is clearly American. But... It appears the only way to get here is Egypt. 
How has no person from Egypt fallen into other world? I mean, it's one of the things. It's an American TV show, so it's American-centric. But it is funny that it's like, this doesn't really make sense. I mean, anyway, uh, Gina, of course, passes the test. The prime manager gives up all her power to uh, Gina because she's now the princess. And, uh, you know, the prime manager does not like it, but she's got plans for her later. But what I did like is uh, the prime manager's like, well, now that you're the princess, allow me to sign you this hot himbo, the captain, Captain Valdor of the Peace Guard to take care of all your needs. Yeah. And Gina is like into it because he's a handsome hunk of man. He was great. They cast the hottest, dumbest man they could find. He looks like someone that Paul Verhoeven would cast. He wasn't even like playing the part. There's times where you watch him act and he's just like, kind of is just dumb. Yeah, he's probably just a model. <laughs> um, but he was great. Uh, Hal and Trace, of course, having heard all of the things about Princess Metra and the fact that she's clearly from Earth, but from a recent period of Earth, because she seems to be from the 60s, but she was here 200 years ago, start developing some sort of theory that perhaps other world time moves faster than Earth time, so that like... 200 years passes here, but only 20 years maybe passes on Earth. There's like this long explanation where I think Hal's even like, imagine two wheels spinning at the same time, but at different speeds, occasionally connecting. And I'm just like, what is happening here? But I like that um, uh, Trey said this. He's like, wait a minute. So all my friends are going to graduate without me? Yeah, well, I think he's like, when I get back, I'll be 80 and graduating with all my teenage friends. I was like, yep, that's what happens, man. That's what happens when you get caught in the uh, interdimensions of the pyramids. But I will say, I do like that this explanation fits into the canon of Pango's dollar bill that explains why it wasn't older. Yeah, I suppose it's true. What, it's weird that this show's canon sometimes actually holds together. <laughs> what you're saying is this is a great, great TV show. I'm just saying the, there's something deep down that works. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Gina is, of course, put to work as the princess. And, uh, you know, basically she's just the decider for society. She has to go to a council meeting and, like, they're like, should we produce more weapons or less weapons? And uh, they're like, what do you think, Gina? And she, like, makes them take a vote. So they introduces voting to society. I thought a more interesting episode or where they were going was going to be either the idea that even though you may have be trying to do something good, because you don't understand the complexities of a particular society, maybe you unintentionally make things worse, you know? And I thought that was going to be maybe not the most original idea, but perhaps something you can mine a little bit more. And I thought that's where they were going and they kind of play with it, but they didn't really. Yeah. They don't spend a lot of time there. So like it just did the one of the problems of the episode. They do have interesting ideas occasionally, but don't really know how to mine them for the most use, uh, mm -hmm. most drama in a show. Well, and you know, what are you going to do? It's a family, it's a family, it's a family adventure show. You know, she's got to be a princess for one episode before she gets out. That's the point. Yeah. Did you, I did like that there's a quick scene change where she goes on to the next job of the princess. And uh, this is a show I would have watched for 45 minutes. It's just uh, uh, Princess Gina's court. Oh yeah. I knew you were going to love this. It's just people coming in and it's that classic sort of. Um, it's just Judge Judy. Yeah, yeah. It's just the argument we get to see is one guy saying. Uh, oh, the, I love the, the first the case. Bird, the bird ate the guy's animals, and the other guy says it's not the bird oh, no. that did it. You're 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 underselling this case, my friend. Oh, well, I was going to get to it. Okay, go for it. Uh, the man is being accused of having an illegal carnivorous bird that ate the head of his neighbor's prized hog. But who does he say? He says it wasn't my bird. Who who ate the head? He's just like the that my neighbor is lying. He has quote 
a multitude of fat concubines <laughs> who eat incessantly. So the argument on the other side is that these quote unquote fat concubines were so hungry they ate the head off of a pig. It's it's a madness. And then the uh, the neighbors just like, "Wait, I have video proof to prove this." And then we just cut away from that case and never have any resolution. <laughs> it was so good. It was it was one of the better things this episode. I honestly, I would have watched so much more if it was just like her listening to weird other world courtroom cases. I would have watched that episode on un- unendingly. They did miss that turn because again, it could have been like she becomes princess and it's everything she wanted, and there's riches and and uh, everyone loves you and fame or whatever it is. But then what she has to spend all her time is listening to these insane cases. There's a, a kind of a funny episode there too, but they just don't want to go there. That's true, and it's funny. They, there's elements of it like you could almost get to because. This is a Gina-centric episode, and the rest of the family is just living in the lap of luxury while she's working all day. Yeah, in some ways, it's very similar to the episode where Hal was cheating on the family because they're just off laying on the beach in that episode. <laughs> anyway, this is all sort of happening, but what we're kind of establishing here is that the way Gina rules, that Prime Manager does not like, and uh, Prime Manager is clearly going to plot to get her power back from Gina. And you know she's bad right away because she's sort of a cold, uptight woman. Got that short haircut. Yeah, she's got a short haircut. She's she's not a great, doesn't have a great sense of humor. Uh, Captain Valdor gives Gina a little tour of kind of the manufacturing center of the town where she gets to see uh, what they make here, which is, quote, uh, wave games and gratification intensifiers <laughs> for Emar's business of pleasure. You would think those would be getting made on that island, but I guess not. And uh, she gets to see kind of where the micro workers come into this. They're, they're, they're part of some sort of collective. And what we see is how they make micro worker children become, uh, uh, I guess, a vibratory, what they call is vibratory behavior modification to make them passively cooperative. And that is they just sit a bunch of children under heat lamps. Yeah. And I think they said they're there for 45 years. Am I wrong? Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, the micro workers only kept alive for 45 years. Oh, it's a well, real, I mean, that makes uh, sense. They get old. They get old. They're not as, as useful. So they, they you die after that yeah. period of time. And of course, Gina Medias is like, this is unfair. This is inhumane. She shuts down this uh, thing where you bake people's brains. You missed the one other part of her tour, though, that I really liked. She goes into a room and it's a bunch of like steaming purple rocks. Yes. And, uh, and, and she's like, what's that? And he says, it's, he goes, oh, that's the shattered remains of the illusionary idol. And I was like, what? What? And then they go, anyways, next room. And you're just like, what? Why did you introduce that? And it actually kind of looked cool. I was sure. I was positive. They were going to reconstruct this thing in some way. And that was going to change the society or, or have some sort of effect. But no, it's just like, nope, move on. It is true. They put so much backstory. Because there's a scene that talks about those remains earlier, too. And then they come to them. They're like... It used to give the princess vision. Like, it lays all this work, and they're like, and the religious rebels broke it. Never come back to yeah. it. <laughs> Anyways, though, The Shattered Remains of the Illusionary Idol, that's an amazing album title for, like, a metal band. <laughs> oh, dear. That'll be the name of our record when we put these all these episodes on, uh, on vinyl. Oh, well, these are all going on vinyl? Oh, absolutely. That's amazing. <laughs> anyway. Uh, We're like a new version of Greg Evigan. Remember he put out that album? Him and Paul Schaefer? For... I do. I remember that for their uh, short-lived sitcom. That's right. And you bought it for me. It's certainly the album anyway, yeah. not the sitcom. Yeah, not the sitcom. I couldn't find it if only the DVDs were available. <laughs> uh, anyway, all this is just this tour where she's seeing how it works. And like the prime manager sends one of her imperial defenders to an attempted assassination on Gina. But like, uh, you know, he, she obviously fails because you can't kill Gina. 
Um, but what this sort of drives Gina to do is she decides it's time that she goes and looks behind that ever closed door of the princess, which yeah. I was surprised she didn't do when she unlocked it initially. Yeah, I actually thought when they did this, I was like, oh, hadn't she already opened the door? But apparently not. No, and inside this room is a hologram of the original Princess Metra, a woman named Kaylee Bradford who fell into the other world on August 22nd, 1964. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then she gives this whole story about how she was there and she got adopted and then she became Metra and it's like, all right. (laughs) You didn't catch? It was a dark story because she talks about how she fell into there. And she ended up in a, in the Forbidden Zone and spent her first year and fell as a slave to a renegade group. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens. I mean, the family's been doing really well. This lady showed up and was a slave for a year. Well, it probably was just that biker group. But then she was just probably looking at Salt Lake thing all day. Chalk. But yeah, she was saved by the king of Metroplex, a man named Jorgen, which, by the way, change your name. To Jorgen? You got it. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, he found her, adopts her to replace her his own dead daughter who died in the uh, Stratification Wars or whatever they're called. Was this, it wasn't the Stratification no, Wars. that was the laws from the last episode. Uh, uh, unification. Unification Wars. And we're going to say, we've gone through eight episodes and they've mentioned the Unification Wars in every single episode and we never got to see anything from it. It's a real Lord of the Rings this episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So much backstory. Uh, eventually, her father died, and she took over ruling this this land, Metroplex. And uh, after a while, she decided, hey, it's time for me to try to get back home to Earth. I'm going to head over to Emor and do that. But just in case I can't get home, I've created this series of tests so that I can return and retake my kingdom. Or if some other random teenage girl from America falls through, I guess she can take over princessing. I didn't get what that was, but I mean, the whole point of this is it's time for a psychedelic journey. Well, actually, I also like that uh, they come back to that piece of canon from the Beast, Beauty and the Beast episode because she's like, oh, by the way, if you ever decide to go home, you got to check out the Valley of Vision where the slain are, are not slain with swords. That's right. They do say it again, don't they? Yeah, continuity, baby. I mean, yeah, it's got that. It's got that in, uh, in spades. It's true. Um, but yes, as you say, Jeannie is tasked with writing a speech to the people of Emar to announce her return as princess. And to do that, she needs to, A, have a moment of meditation. But before she goes there, she's, uh, I wanted to just touch on this one scene very quickly, Jordan, Mm -hmm. is she's trying to write this speech. And she clearly is just like, there's a lot of inequity in this society. I really have to take a strong stand and uh, talk about these micro workers and how slavery is not correct. And she's sitting around with her family trying to craft this speech. And Trace is just like, Listen, I don't think you should rock the boat and free the slaves, man. You know, I think you should keep the status quo going. We should just ride this out a little longer. And it's just like such a bad take. And Gina's just like, dude, I'm not going to say we should keep slavery. And Hal butts in. He's like, whoa, 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 Gina. You should listen to what Trace has to say. His opinions are valid. And it's not fair for you to shut them down. It made me laugh. It was so funny. Because I'll give him this. It's consistent with Hal. But it's so funny, this idea of like, He's saying something that's so wildly inappropriate. And they're like, well, you got to listen to him. And look, I mean, that's a larger discussion. I'm not saying free speech isn't free speech, but it is funny. It's just like, this is not the argument you need to defend. Yeah, it is. Hal's just like, listen, he may be pro-slavery, but everyone deserves a voice at the table. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, so just consider it. What we're saying is consider it when you're making your speech. Maybe (laughs) pro-slavery? Anyway, uh, it's a very short scene, but it made me laugh. And I was once again, I was like, oh, Hal, go fuck yourself. Who is the worst character? Is it Trace or is it Hal? It's got to be Hal, right? I think it is Hal. 100% Hal. Yeah. 
Uh, but yes, the uh, some of the council pops in and says, hey, before the princess gives her speech, it's tradition for her to go meditate by herself. And meditating by yourself means you go into a room with like a treasure chest with something glowing inside a la Pulp Fiction. Yeah, it's like she there's like a thing and she puts her hand in like a box and it's like full of glowing rocks or something. And then, as we mentioned, she's going to go on the longest vision journey ever. Yeah, uh, what what was your count? I had six and a half minutes. It started on our the video we were watching at twenty eight oh eight, and when she woke up or was on the ground, it was thirty three twenty five. It was I was crazy. It is it is a just an experimental film of like random footage of uh, cars driving and like volcanoes erupting and just it's all like intercut together and overlaid on each other. It just goes on and on and on. And I was blown away. A good soundtrack for it, but I was blown away that it just kept happening. Well, do you think like they knew they were going to be short and they're just like, just make this sequence go as long as it can. We'll get up to the uh, that time we need. The only explanation I could come up with is like, oh man, someone wrote a too short an episode and they just like, were like, well, we'll just do a fun experimental film in the middle of the episode. Yeah. I'll, I'll give them this. I don't think I've ever seen on a TV show something go like a sequence like that go as long as that. I've never seen like over five minutes. Uh, it's truly, I think it, the math works out to it's almost 10% of the entire episode. It's crazy. Or as I would say, it goes on for 3000 hours. <laughs> you love to exaggerate. <laughs> I'm a big liar. <laughs> um, the only thing of note in this entire like trip out hallucination sequence, I will note is she gets a vision of Emar, which is the, you know, the big city we're hoping to get to eventually on this series. And you know what? It was great. Didn't it look a little bit like um, instead of the twin towers, it had the tri towers. Well, that's, it's just the skyline of New York city, but with three world trade center buildings. instead <laughs> yeah. of two. It looks good though. The, the effect is very good, but you wanted to point out that, but in this world, there was no September 11th. Don't go there, Jordan. <laughs> I, knew, I knew we were going to have to go there. <laughs> I, I barely said anything. It's 1985, Jordan. Of course not. Yeah, that's true. That would mean something, though, huh? Wait, what? If they had, like, predicted that. Anyways, <laughs> um, like, let me mention one thing that's, uh, that's not about September 11th and your conspiracy theories about that jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. <laughs> <laughs> the the there's one interesting thing that really has nothing to do with the uh, episode but it's just interesting to me that the what was the, the villain name C- commander prime whatever her name is prime manager that's the one she uh she does something that a lot of villains do which is while she's talking to someone and she's talking to the old um good-looking model dumb boyfriend guy in this and while she's like giving her evil plan she starts stroking his face and this is this <laughs> weird thing that villains always do i'm like why are they always so handsy at touching people's faces they don't have boundaries, those villains. Exactly. Um, speaking of the villain, though, post-hallucination, she appears as a hologram for Genie and kind of just like, yo, I uh, took old Captain Valdor hostage. Um, I'm requesting a change of government from Emar. So if you give a very inoffensive speech tonight, <laughs> I will release Valdor. And then in 14 days, when Emar makes me ruler again, I will let you and your family leave. And so we're kind of wondering if Gina's going to make what choice she's going to make. But you think that's what it really is. But there's no it's not really set up that way at all. It's not like you see her having to struggle with the decision. She just goes makes the speech she wants to make. Yeah, you immediately cut to her basically giving a televised speech saying, yo, macro elites suck. Micro workers rule. <laughs> and everyone's like, yes, yes, Gina, Gina, Gina. Actually, they don't even know her name is Gina. They're like, what's her name? Tetra, Metra, Metra, Metra. 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 Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, she she frees the micro workers, and I don't know, just because I guess Trace and Hal are such interesting, cool characters, they 
use the access crystal to basically arm the micro workers for a rebellion. Oh, there, it's one of my favorite lines in this episode, though. Where is it? Oh, so because it's like they decided those two characters had nothing to do. So you cut to Hal and Trace, and they're running around these corridors, and they and these two characters go, "How did you guys find your way through the corridors?" And Trace goes, "We have maps." <laughs> And I thought, what? What? Like, you've had no explanation about what these corridors are, or that they might be confusing, or that there's some sort of labyrinth system. Nor did you show them getting a map, or needing a map, or having this have to do anything with the episode. We don't even know at this point what they're doing, but we had to mention that, just so the viewer knows. They had a map, so everything's fine. (laughs) But yeah, it's basically they're arming rebels the macro elite's going crazy. Gina and the family are briefly arrested and tossed in a, uh, a laser prison. And also, <laughs> I guess, can disintegrate you? Yeah, it's a laser. I think we've, we've seen these other sci-fi shows. It's, the bars are basically lasers, so you don't want to touch those. Yeah, it's very funny. The micro elite have them for a hot second, and they're like, should we disintegrate them now? And they're like, no, we must wait for the prime minister, the prime manager. She'd love to watch. Yeah, I mean, of course she does. She, the two things we know about her, she loves stroking faces and watching disintegrations. <laughs> Um, but of course, very quickly after that, the rebels break in, rescue the family. We get a scene where they, ho- you know, they've, they're holding all the macro elites hostage, and uh, <laughs> the prime manager like jumps out of custody, grabs a gun, and her and Captain Valdor shoot themselves to death. Yeah, and they both die. He gets a scene and be like, "I always loved you, Gina." He is very funny when he dies too. His acting for dying is that I laughed so hard. <laughs> like. It's like, oh, roll my eyes back into my head. Oh, out comes my tongue. <laughs> you know, apparently, this is a, a real quick side story. When I was like 10 years old, uh, I fainted by holding my breath, trying to impress a girl. And uh, Makes sense. Yeah, I fe- it was in science class, and I fell over and like was on the ground. And everyone thought I was joking because my, my eyes were rolled back and my tongue was sticking out of my face. And apparently it looked like I was just being silly. Snow and helped me for quite some time. <laughs> But, I mean, she's your wife now, so it was worth it. That's true. That's how we met. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, they're dead. We get rid of those two side characters who we were very attached to. Um, The micro workers are like, all right, now that we have control, let's execute every macro elite. And uh, Hal jumps in to tell them, quote, you can't build a government based on revenge. Yeah. And I was like, hey, Hal, tell that to 2020. (laughs) Like, also, Hal... Uh, why don't you butt out? You know what? This revolution's happening. Get out of the way, man. But he won't because him and Gina stick around to establish a new government in Metroplex for what must arguably take months. I know. It's crazy that they always do this. It's not like, you know, these sort of shows where whatever it might be, a Highway to Heaven or something. And they're like, oh, well, we solved the problem. See you guys later. On to another venture. They're like, well, I guess we're in it for the long haul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get a, like a micro montage of Gina like sitting in on council meetings as they attempt to build it. I'm just like, this must have gone on for ages. Yeah, and it, they really should have had his Gina seem like she's getting more and more fed up, and then she starts becoming the dictator that she didn't know she was going to become. That's a better episode. It's like part two of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and the episode wraps up by them climbing back in their hot air balloon and flying away. <laughs> and and then the and then he gives some sort of Hal gives some sort of thing. He's like, well, maybe one of these days we'll make it to Neymar. And uh, anyways, smell you later. <laughs> oh man, what a crazy episode. Yeah. Um. Uh, well, that's it. Not just for these episodes, Jordan, but for Otherworld. Mm-hmm. 
any final thoughts before we get into the final bits of uh, work on this episode? I think as we went through the show, it became more and more clear the uh, push and pull and tugging of what the show was supposed to be and what it actually is. It, it actually reminds me a lot of the latter half of Galactic 1980, where it just feels like you can almost sense the interference. Not that I think this was ever going to be a great show, but I think there was at least uh, premise ideas that could have been used in a more interesting way. And unfortunately, they almost never chose the interesting way to go. I think these last two episodes were interesting in that they kind of represented an interesting dichotomy of what I noticed in the show is that Beauty and the Beast episode, well, definitely better than the two previous episodes we watched, um, mm-hmm. Woman World and then uh, whatever the first one was. They were both so bad. They were both terrible, Oh, yeah. Mad Max World. Um, it just felt like they picked a random plot from a sci-fi handbag and were like, I guess it's Beauty and the Beast this week. Whereas the Princess Metro one at least felt like it fit with those first two episodes we watched where they were in like a weird sci-fi Agreed. world with like a lot of backstory. Which I preferred for the show. So it's interesting to watch those two. Ba- like Beauty and the Beast was like perfunctory and like just boring a plot from something else and barely skinning it for this series. Mm-hmm. And then the other one felt like, oh, this lives in a world. Well, not a great world. At least it lives in a consistent world. I think you're right. I think that's a good way of saying it. And you're right. It's like they do a better job. Even if it's weird, it doesn't quite work. They do a better job when they're trying to do some world building, even if it's a world that's not that interesting, as opposed to just like cribbing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. When they crib, it sucks. But at least if they try to do something original, it kind of works a little bit anyway. Well, Jordan, what do you want to give Mansion of the Beast? Uh, I mean, I'm probably being fair. I'm going to give it a five out of 10. It's like, it could could be much worse. Because again, like they didn't write an episode. It's like it was a last minute thing and they had to stick, get their essay in. And they're just like, oh, Beauty and the Beast. I mean, I'll give them this. It wasn't the suburbs. They at least had some sort of monster kind of guy, and it wasn't Cold ha- Starfire, yeah, baby. and it wasn't Hal centered, so that it's going to get a five because of those. I am in complete agreement. I wasn't a good episode, but it also wasn't. It it felt just like so average in every single way. Yeah. I'm going to give it a five. And the final episode, Princess Metra. Like you said, I think this was one of their better episodes. I don't think it quite got where it was going to go, but again, weren't in the suburbs. Uh, it was a Gina-centric episode. It has some problems, and that one psychedelic thing is insane. You almost got to give it a point because how crazy that that was that they put that on TV. I'm going to give it a 6.5. 6.5. I agree, and I mean, I probably, having come off of, I think, three of the, the worst episodes, it was a bit of a relief to kind of watch something that felt fun mm-hmm. again. Yeah, it was a refreshing episode. And I didn't love... I didn't love lots of it, but uh, it was just refreshing. I'm going to give it a seven. I think we're pretty close. And I think for the most part, I mean, I know you're going to punch in the scores very shortly. I think we were pretty close for most of this. Yeah, I think you and I felt very similar about this episode, uh, this series in general. I don't think we ever varied too much, except for maybe on the rock and roll episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, hold on. Let me let me blow the dust off because it's been a while. <laughs> and uh, that's that's the that's the extra money we're paying for those sound effects there. And uh, Ed, let's punch in the uh, punch in the scores. All right, let me see what the old continuum drag computer is giving as our average for other world. All right, Jordan, <laughs> are you ready? Are you ready? Uh, our final 
rating, our final average for Otherworld as a series comes in at 4.625. Yeah. I mean, so if we if we had at this point, if the show had had extra episodes, we would be out. Yeah, we would have escaped pod this baby. Yeah. What can we say? Like, you know, if if someone said, "Hey, you guys just watched uh, Otherworld. Should I watch that show?" and you would say, I mean, I would certainly tell people not to watch it. I would say if you have a striving curiosity, I think I would watch of this series the first episode, the second episode, and the final episode. And that's it. You're right. You're right. I would uh, go further and say, please do not watch this show. Oh, dear. Oh, you know what? I, that's wrong. I would watch the Rock and, Re- Rock and Roll episode for sure. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> if you love Rock and Roll, you're going to love <laughs> Yeah, I guess. <laughs> anyway that wraps it up for other world it was a real journey into a other world and did i did i pick this show was this is this my fault oh this is a, this is a jordan special <laughs> i always pick the worst shows <laughs> well uh i'll pick the next one and we'll see if i can lower the bar oh yeah okay <laughs> all right if you have anything you need to fill us in on for other world before we wrap this up you can get us at continuandrag at gmail.com and of course, on Instagram and Twitter, we're definitely going to have some clips from these seri- this this series and these shows. They'd make good clips, actually. It's true. This show is one of those shows that works well in uh, five to ten second increments. Absolutely. Um, but that's about it. So, listener, thank you for joining us. And, Jordan, see you next week. See you then. And what was the name of that uh, that place? The Valley of the Shadow of the Dead who... Valley of Vision, where the slain are not slain with swords. That's where we're going to be next week. Nice. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler, produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.